1: Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. The number, if you want to call me, is 303 873 1935. We've been talking about a lot of different things Psalm 83. And a person called in and asked about the scars. You know, is there some evidence that in his post resurrection body, does Jesus retain the marks of the sacrifice? of Calvary. And one of the things, and and I want to talk a little bit more about that, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about Hanukkah. And so again, if you'd like to join me on the program though, it's 303-873-1935. On this tough question Tuesday, I might return to the subject of the scars. But um, just for now, I'm, I wanted to to just give a brief little answer about what is Hanukkah And Hanukkah is the Jewish festival of lights. Um, It's an eight-day festival. It usually begins, it does begin on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev, which typically falls in November. This year it falls in December on our calendar. And even though the Jewish festival isn't mentioned in the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, it's referenced in the Talmud, or the Babylonian Talmud, where it says, on the 25th of Kislev are the days of Hanukkah, which are eight. These were appointed a festival with Hallel, That means prayers of praise and thanksgiving. And that's from Shabbat, from the Babylonian Talmud. So... Hanukkah is a very well-known, maybe even the best-known, other than Passover or Seder, not because of any great religious significance, but because of its proximity to Christmas. And so for some non-Jews, for some Gentiles, they might think of this holiday as a kind of a Jewish Christmas, and then adopting many of the Christmas customs, like elaborate gift giving and decorations and because of this it is ironic that this holiday which has its roots in a revolution against assimilation and suppression of the Jewish people and the Jewish religion has become in part one of the most assimilated secular holidays on the Jewish calendar so Again, it's really, really interesting that a Jewish, um, it, well, actually, a Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, had, but I'll talk more about that in just a moment. So, the, But the holiday of Hanukkah celebrates the events which took place over 2,300 years ago in the land of Judea, which is now Israel. And it began during the reign of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great shows up in Jerusalem. But he also conquers Syria, Egypt. He allows the lands under his control to continue observing their own religious uh, traditions. And these areas retain a certain amount of autonomy, and un, and under his relatively benevolent rule many jews assimilated much of the greek culture or what people call the hellenistic culture and so during that time period um the greek language is introduced into syria egypt and israel and it it becomes an adopted language and the customs of the greeks and the dress of the greeks and much the same way that Jews in America today um, will speak English. They'll adopt uh, American culture and customs and blend into the secular American society. And so more than 100 years after Alexander the Great, Antiochus IV rose to power in the region. He began to oppress the Jews severely He placed a Greek or Hellenistic priest in the temple, massacred the Jews, prohibited the practice of the Jewish religion, and desecrated the temple by requiring the sacrifice of pigs, which is a non-kosher animal, on the altar. And one of the groups which opposed Antiochus was led by a man named Matanias, or Mataneu, Uh, He was a Hasmonean, which means he was from the priestly uh, class, and his son Judah Maccabee, who was called the Hammer. And so this small band of pious Jews led guerrilla warfare against the Syrian-slash-Greek army of Antiochus. So Antiochus sends thousands and thousands of well-armed troops to crush the rebellion, But the Maccabees succeeded in driving the foreigners from their land, and according to historical accounts, Jewish fighters entered Jerusalem about December of 165 B.C., and the Holy Temple and the Jewish Religious Center, even though it was in shambles and and defiled and desecrated, they would begin to rebuild it, and so that begins part of the story of Hanukkah. 303-873-1935. 1935 Let's see who's up. Paul, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, Gino. How are you? Good. Well, I got a little bit different kind of question. I was When I read Abraham, you know, in Genesis 16, Hagar gives a birth to a child, Ishmael.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And then... Uh, much later in Genesis uh, 21 Sarah gives birth to Isaac right so my question Gino is uh, from my understanding you know of course Ishmael was kicked out by Abraham out of you know there were but Ishmael had to have been probably about thirteen years old ten to thirteen years old when Isaac was born but in the Bible it says that that he was a baby and crying in you know, you know that uh, Hagar had put him down in some bushes and he was crying. And I just don't know if I can believe that story because he had to been 10 to 13 years old. So h- how would you look at that? Am I just looking at things kind of silly or?
1: Well, the way that I would in part look at it is the point of the story, but um... – and, and and the point of the story, which is going to be reiterated later in Genesis in the point of the story. But to make a long story short, you, you, Hagar's son Ishmael, like you said, probably would have been about 14 years old at the time of Isaac's birth. Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away after Isaac is weaned, which is about age two or three making Ishmael about 16 years old. And it doesn't say crying, um, but, but they hear the voice of of the boy. So let's, let's go to the text itself. So it okay. says at the time, God repeated his promise that Ishmael is going to be the father of a great nation. And Hagar is in the desert and near death when the angel of God calls to her saying, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard... The voice of the boy where he is. It's just so, it, is, it isn't so much. Cr- so, yeah, I mean, if you're starving to death, if you're dying of thirst, you cry out to God and he says, Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make. uh, for I will make him into a great nation, Genesis chapter 21, verses 17 and 18. So Ishmael and his mother, they live in this wilderness called Paran, where he becomes an expert with bow, and later he takes an Egyptian wife, and he's seen again in Scripture when he comes to help bury his father, Abraham. The story is completely believable.
2: No, I I believe, I just, I guess sometimes when you read the Bible, it's, sometimes one sentence
1: or it can be between okay. sentences or it can be you, 3 to 5 years yeah I you hold, so yeah you hold on and I'll let you finish your thought when we come back hey welcome back ladies and gentlemen this is Gino Geraci so glad you could join me on the program we're talking with Paul and Paul you were talking about the passage of scripture about Ishmael and okay, yes. uh and uh, you were wondering about Um, how, what, what really happened? What does the text say? And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to finish your thought or to ask another question about it.
2: Well, I think I can understand when you say that no matter what age he was, like, even at my age, I'm over 50. I would cry out to God if I'm thirsty or hungry also. So, you know, I understand what you're saying, but then Ishmael becomes, he becomes the father of 12. He has 12 sons, doesn't he?
1: He will become the father of 12 sons who are called princes. And he's going to live to be 137 years. Sarah dies at the age of 127 in Hebron. So she's buried there in Hebron. And the Bible doesn't give us the record of Hagar's death. She's mentioned in Genesis mm-hmm. chapter twenty-five, but those twelve sons are going to form tribal groups, just like Abraham's powerful son Isaac is going to give birth to, or uh, Abraham, Isaac and, and 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 Jake. Yeah, he's going to give, but also Esau, and so Esau is going to become. um the, the the progenitor of the Edomites, which so so these tribal groups are going to be powerful groups that are going to plague Israel throughout their history. So the what I wanted to point out to you is obviously part of the point of the story is that God is at work despite misguided human effort. Remember, God had made a promise to Sarah and it didn't look like God was keeping his word. So Sarah offers her servant to Abraham and obviously Abraham had no business sleeping with Hagar. And so, and it was wrong for Sarah to mistreat her servant, but God worked in all of those situations. So there's, there's tragedy and difficulty. And so even in the midst of the tragedy and the difficulty, Hagar is blessed and Abraham and Sarah are still the recipients of the promise and God's mercy is great and his sovereignty and his sovereign will is going to be accomplished in spite of human stupidity and yeah. human frailty.
2: I, I Then my next question then would be, did, did uh, Ishmael, did,
1: Muhammad come from Ishmael's line. There seems to be good evidence that the tribal groups that are going to eventually uh, become the Arab countries and Muhammad are going to be descendants of Ishmael, and they themselves identify as descendants of Ishmael. But not all Muslims are descendants of Ishmael. Um, the Persians, oh. for instance, in Iran like the ayatollah Khomeini those are Persians and so they're not descendants of of Ishmael so so a lot of different muslim groups have emerged other than arab muslims but what's interesting is the way paul interprets this in galatians chapter 4 paul uses the story of sarah and hagar to illustrate the results of two different covenants the new covenant based on grace the old covenant based on the law and in paul's analogy believers in christ are like the child born of sarah free and the and the product of god's promise and those who try to earn their salvation by their own works are like the child of hagar a slave wow. the result of human effort now using that as an illustration is that supposed to trivialize or dehumanize Hagar, her son, or their offspring? No, because what we uh, no. learn, of course, from a biblical standpoint, is what do Jews and Gentiles have in common? They can both be saved. What do Muslims and Hindus have in common? They can be saved. They're human beings made in the image of God who can hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and receive eternal life.
2: But- I, I just it blows me. How did they get so far off base? I mean, Jesus, they know that Jesus existed and he died on the cross. I mean, there's ninety nine point five percent proof that that happened, and they still, you know, they don't believe Jesus is uh, part of the Trinity. They believe he's just another prophet. How exactly. did they get so far off base?
1: <laughs> well, it would appear that part of, part of the reason that they got so far off base was again in the origins and then the d- development of Islam. But that is a different story for a different time.
2: <laughs> it's, I, yeah, it's a big one. I understand.
1: Yeah, so I, when we, I, I'm just.
2: I'm sorry, Gino. Go ahead. Oh
1: no, no, no. What I what I was basically um, going to say was that when you look at Islam and and what they believe, they literally believe. So there's several things that, that they have in common both in Islam and in Judaism and Christianity, they believe that God is a righteous judge. Um But what they, what to your point, they, they fail to have a right view of Jesus and a right view of his message and a right view of what's that salvation comes by Christ. So, um, yeah, so they have a what, low view of sin. Where would low, they
2: what part when did they stop following the Bible? Or do they just follow the Old Testament and then they stop? I mean, because the New Testament's all about Jesus. Well and, the way and, that the, and, the
1: way that I would answer your question is like the Mormons in Islam, they believe that the New Testament, they call it the Injil, is correct insofar as it's properly translated and interpreted. So it just so happens that they'll see the Injil, the new Testament through the lens of the Quran. And so the way that, that I would think about it, instead of reading the Quran through the lens of the, of the new Testament, they read the new Testament through the lens of the Quran. And that's why it becomes, it becomes um, skewed. And so, so uh, you can imagine if you're seeing if you're seeing both the old testament and the new testament through the lens of the quran if the old testament or the new testament seems to say something profoundly different from the quran then they'll evaluate it or they'll they believe that the quran is the fulfillment or the perfection of the revelation um and so it, if for whatever reason it disagrees that they, they think that the Quran is the final authority and the final revelation, and it supersedes all previous revelation.
2: It supersedes. Okay. But right, I guess uh, one more question. I know, I know you've got others. See, I, I think Muhammad was evil because he was just as evil as he was good. How can somebody evil write a book and then the Muslims follow it? That's, a part I don't well, understand. this
1: this goes to, to the earlier question that what the caller had about evil, and remember yeah. what I said that evil is the absence of good, but if you take even what's good, and you eliminate the God of the Bible, even good becomes evil. So remember that in in um, in their belief about God, they believe. In one Allah, one God, that he is eternal, that he is the creator, and that he is sovereign. They believe in angels. They believe in prophets. They they believe in the revelations of Allah. But they also believe that the Quran was a pre-existent something perfect and that they have received the revelation. And so what they do is they wind up getting everything wrong about Jesus. And you've heard me say this over and over again, yeah. that if you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. <laughs> There's nothing
2: else that matters, is there?
1: Exactly.
2: Wow. I really appreciate it. You,
1: you know a lot. I Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening and thanks for calling.
2: All right, you Bye-bye.
1: that's the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back. If you'd like to join me, it's 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. And, of course, someone sent me a note. Grace is when God gives us good things that we don't deserve. Mercy is when he spares us from the bad things we deserve. Blessings are when he is generous with both. (laughs) God is good all the time. I think that that's true. 303-873-1935. We were talking with uh, an earlier caller about Ishmael and um the offspring of Abraham. And again, if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. And when we t- when we talk about Islamic or Muslim belief in God and what the Quran teaches um about Allah or God, in the similarities are Both are one. In other words, there aren't two gods or three gods or five gods or 120 gods or millions of gods like in Hinduism. There's one singular self-existent God. Both are transcendent creators of the universe. In other words, God isn't contained in in the physical manifestation of the universe, the universe is not God and the and God is not the universe. both are sovereign, both are omnipotent, both have spoken um, to humanity through angels or messengers or prophets and through the written word, both know in intimate detail the thoughts and and activities of human beings, and both will be. Uh, both will judge the wicked. Now, so people might say, well, then are you saying that the God of Islam is the same as the God of the Bible? And of course, the answer is no, they're not the same. In spite of what leaders will say, in, in sp- spite of what theologians will say, or political activists will say, the God of the Quran is a singular unity but the God of the Bible is a compound unity who is one in essence and three in persons that's Matthew 28:19 John 10:30 and Acts chapter 5 verses 3 and 4 so there is a trinity in other words, God the Father is, in fact, God. God the Son is, in fact, God. God the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. There aren't three gods. There is one God, and people will say, well, your math doesn't add up. Well, in the God of the Quran, he is not a father. But in the New Testament, God is a father. In the Quran, God has begotten no sons. That's what it says in the Surah 19 and in Surah 11. But the God of the Bible is a triunity who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So some scholars have pointed out that there seems to be some evidence that at least in its initial offerings, Islam becomes a kind of Christian heresy. Um in the Quran God speaks into history through a word that is written but in the New Testament God speaks into history through Jesus Christ the Lord um the God of the Quran doesn't love prodigals it says ali ali has wasters but Jesus tells the story of a father in the metaphor of of uh, the prodigal son that Jesus speaks of in Luke chapter 15. And in Surah chapter 3, verse 140, it says, Allah loves not those that do wrong, and neither does he love him who is treacherous, sinful. But God demonstrates his own love for us, it says in the New Testament, even while we are sinners, And so the standard of judgment for the God of the Quran is our good deeds have to outweigh our bad deeds. But the standard of the God of the Bible is nothing less than complete perfection as is measured by the holy character of God. And people will say no one can live up to that standard and you would be correct. And that's the difference. Because only Jesus can do that. And that's why Christians believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so the God of the Quran provides a messenger, according to Islam, that Muhammad warns of Allah's impending judgments. But in the New Testament, God sends Jesus, who takes our sin upon himself and bears God's wrath, the wrath that we deserve. And so, um, 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. And um, like, I said earlier, the doctrine of Islam includes belief in prophets and angels and the belief that the Quran is the pre-existent perfect word of Allah. Um, There's the belief in the last judgment and the hereafter. In other words, in Islam, they do believe that there's life after death and there's belief in predestination in Islam. Muslims believe Allah has decreed everything everything that will happen. And so Muslims testify to Allah's sovereignty with their frequent phrase, Inshallah, which means if God wills, Inshallah. You know, in Spanish, there's uh, a word that has come down in the language that is derived from when the Muslims occupied Spain, Ohala. That means I hope, I hope and uh, of course 3038731935 that's the number if you want to join me on the program 3038731935 it's really funny what you know we get off on and start talking about but the five pillars of islam this sort of composes the framework of obedience for islam, for muslims it's the first tenant or the first pillar of islam is what's called the shahada, which is the testimony of faith. And so in the Arabic language, la, ilaha, Illa Allah, Muhammad, Rasul, Allah. And that the shahada means there is no deity but Allah. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So that phrase la ilaha, ilaha Allah. A person can convert to Islam simply by saying that creed. Now again, it isn't just simply by saying it, obviously in Islamic theology um You have to believe it. So the Shahada shows that a Muslim believes in Allah alone as the deity and believes that Muhammad reveals Allah. So, um, you know, they don't have altar calls and that kind of stuff. You just simply say that phrase. So in Islam, the second pillar is what's called Salat, which is prayer. Five ritual prayers have to be performed every day. And then giving, which is called Saqqat, and alms giving of a certain percentage given once a year. And then fasting. Um, so Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. They can't eat or drink from dawn till sunset. And then, of course, the fifth pillar is pilgrimage, the Hajj. If it's physically and financially possible, Muslims have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once. And so the Hajj is performed in the 12th month of the Islamic calendar. And that is the five pillars of Islam. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be at Calvary South Denver tonight. Um... We're going to have a special, I'm going to be bringing some of my Bible coins to Calvary South Denver and telling the story. But uh, 303-873-1935 is the number if you want to join me on the program. 303-873-1935 and uh, the Wall Street Journal has reported that Israel has begun flooding the Hamas terror tunnels in Gaza using seawater. And uh, critics have said that this is a move that raises significant safety concerns. And, of course, other people have suggested if the tragic hostages are in these terror tunnels, that they're going to be killed as well. The operation uses pumps capable of moving really large volumes of water that's situated near what's called the Al-Shati refugee camp. And so this development is particularly alarming, again, given the presence of over 100 hostages still held by Hamas. And so um, it's going to be interesting to see how that story unfolds. And, um the number if you want to join me on the, on the program is three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. One of the questions that I frequently get asked is, um, you know, about First John chapter four verse twelve. What does it mean? What does what does it mean in First John chapter four verse twelve when it says, "No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another." God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And so that same assertion that no one has ever seen God can be found in other parts of the Scripture, like in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, um, but slightly different, um, but what does this statement signify, especially in light of Moses and Gideon, and and people who have claimed to see God. So John chapter 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And then in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so, again, you see instances in the Bible like Moses and Gideon and others. So Scripture says that no one has seen God because God is a spiritual being, and our eyes are limited to perceiving that which is material, physical, made of the constituent elements of matter, space, time, motion, light, But even our perceptions have limits. According to the Bible, God is invisible. So in in a real sense, like you can't see the wind, but you can see the consequence or the results of wind. We cannot see God. And it's important to distinguish between what is possible and what is reasonable, While anything can happen within the realm of possibilities, it's reasonable to expect created beings to see the creator on the creator's terms in what sense when we uh, see what happens in the passages of scripture, like, you know, a burning bush or a, a pillar of fire or those kinds of things. So, In a a real sense, uh, according to the Bible, there's a spiritual realm, but apparently you can't see this spiritual realm unless you have spiritual eyes. So the skeptic says, well, how can we come to know God if we can't see him? In response, what we assert is that God took the first step to meet us in the person of Jesus. So if we seek to know God, we look at Jesus. Now, what's interesting about John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us, So another translation of John one eighteen, which I read earlier in the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In other words, the New Testament teaches that Jesus reveals God and explains God, and the writer of Hebrews also affirms this by saying in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in times past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his own dear son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so here is abundant evidence, if you will, that God in Christ created, dare we use the term, reality. When it says universe, I'm going to suggest to you everything that exists that we're able to see that's made of matter, energy, and and motion. So not only does Jesus redeem us from our sins but he also makes god visible accessible approachable so what about the passages in the old testament that seems to suggest that people met god even wrestled with him like in exodus 33 where it says on one hand that moses couldn't see god verse 20 yet the record says the lord would speak to moses face to face as one speaks to a friend that expression face to face the, the way that I would think about it is that it's a figure of speech. It's a Hebraism emphasizing intimacy between God and Moses, or it could be that Moses saw what theologians call a theophany, a, a physical visible manifestation of God. Other possible theophanies in the old Testament include Jacob's wrestling um, match, at at the river Jabok in Genesis chapter 32, Abraham's con- conversation when God, um, when he was talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and then, of course, the appearance of an angel to Samson's parents in Judges chapter 13, and, of course, the story of the angel who speaks to Gideon. And so even though no one has ever beheld God in his fullness, his essence, it would appear that he makes himself known in certain ways and in certain times and with conversation. And so after John states that no one has ever seen God, he writes, but if we love one another. God lives in us and his love is made complete in us and so the love christians demonstrate reflect god's love we can't see god yet when we exercise love we know that god is dwelling in us so christians christian love serves as a tangible evidence of God and the gospel. So, John one eighteen. No one has ever seen God. 1 John 4. Enjoy your evening. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for being with me.